Welcome to In the Public Interest, a podcast from Wilmer Hale. I'm John Walsh. And I'm Brendan McGuire. John and I are partners at Wilmer Hale, an international law firm that works at the intersection of government, technology, and business. Today's episode focuses on the death penalty in America. In July 2020, the death penalty attracted national attention when the Trump administration and the Department of Justice reinstituted federal executions for the first time in more than 17 years. Ultimately, the administration carried out 13 executions in six months, an unprecedented number. And the death penalty continues to make headlines today. Even since this episode was recorded, there have been several important developments. The Department of Justice has urged the Supreme Court to reinstate the death sentence of Jokar Sarnayev, convicted in the deadly 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. And South Carolina, having run out of the drugs needed to perform lethal injections, recently passed a law requiring inmates to choose either electrocution or firing squad as their method of execution. And most recently, the DOJ announced a moratorium on federal executions, while a review of the department's policies and procedures is pending. This is such a serious issue, and there is so much to discuss. So we are honored to be joined by two of the nation's leading experts to take you through it all. And with that, John, I will pass it over to you. Thanks, Brendan. Our first guest, Seth Waxman, my partner here at Wilmer Hale, served as Solicitor General of the United States from 1997 through January of 2001. Seth is one of the country's foremost appellate advocates, including in death penalty cases. He's represented death row inmates over the course of 36 years of private law practice and has argued and won several death penalty cases in the U.S. Supreme Court. Those victories include Roper v. Simmons, in which the Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional for juvenile offenders. Most recently, Seth was part of a team of Wilmer Hill attorneys who represented Wes Perkey, a federal inmate who was executed in July of 2020. Joining Seth and me today is Carol Steiker, my former co-clerk and the Henry J. Friendly Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Professor Steiker served as faculty co-director of the Harvard Criminal Justice Policy Program from 2015 to 2020. A former law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, Professor Steiker specializes in criminal justice with a special focus on capital punishment. She's also the faculty sponsor of Harvard's Capital Punishment Clinic. Finally, as if that were not enough, she's an author on death penalty matters, including her recent book, Courting Death, the Supreme Court and Capital Punishment which he co-authored with her brother, Jordan Steiker, who is a professor at the University of Texas School of Law. Carol and Seth, thank you both for being here. Between July 2020 and President Trump's final days in office in January of 21, the federal government executed 13 people, including a woman. Prior to that, not a single person had been executed by the federal government since 2003. Professor Stecker, could you put the Trump administration's application of the death penalty into context for our audience? Was this rush of executions really in sync with the state of capital punishment in the U.S. these days and the American public's opinion of it? Well, I think clearly not. Shortly after the conclusion of these 13 executions, the American people elected President Joe Biden, the very first president ever to run on an explicitly anti-death penalty platform. Moreover, stuff that's been happening in the states has underscored the movement away from the death penalty. In March 2021, Virginia repealed its death penalty, the first 
state of the former Confederacy to do so, and in fact, the state that has executed the most people in American history. And that follows on the heel of Colorado's abolition the previous year and on Governor Gavin Newsom's moratorium on executions in California the year before that. So there's been tremendous movement away from the death penalty in the United States in the past decade or two. How about on a global level? Are we seeing a trend in the same direction in countries around the world away from the death penalty? Or how does that compare? Actually, the movement in the United States away from the death penalty mirrors a global movement away from the death penalty. You know, for most of American history and most of world history, the death penalty was unproblematic and practiced around the globe. Starting in the 1960s, 70s, there's a tremendous movement away. So in the 1960s, only about two dozen countries in the world had abolished the death penalty out of about 200 countries that make up the globe. Today, more than half of the countries in the world have abolished the death penalty for all crimes, and more than two-thirds have done so in practice. So that's an extraordinary global movement. Do you think that what happened with the Trump administration and the many executions that took place in those last six months of President Trump's term, do you think that that spate of executions is actually going to have a further impact on public opinion? How are you seeing that play out? I think it represents a sort of dying grasp for power, speaking to a small and committed part of Trump's base, but not to the general state of public opinion in the United States, which has been on a long standing and very dramatic movement in the other direction. So if anything, I think it will underscore the declining support rather than inspire more support. So, Seth, I want to shift gears for a moment to the sort of the legal battlegrounds regarding capital punishment. And you, of course, have spent many years litigating capital cases in courts all around the country and in the Supreme Court. Could you give us just a little bit of an overview of how the Supreme Court has dealt with issues concerning the death penalty generally? And then also, to the degree it's changed recently, what direction is it headed in? Yes. Beginning in 1972, in the Supreme Court's landmark decision in Furman versus Georgia, the Supreme Court has played a very substantial role with respect to the developing jurisprudence of the death penalty, both as to the kinds of crimes and circumstances in which capital punishment is appropriate and also, to some extent, procedures. In Furman, the court held that the existing state procedures for administering capital punishment, that is for deciding which convicted murderers are the worst of the worst, were so arbitrary and capricious that they violated the federal constitution. In 1977, the court considered new laws in four different states and the laws in two of those states, in fact, satisfied the constitutional requirement for reliability And those laws have been the model ever since. And the Supreme Court has decided a lot of cases on its full merits docket. They decide to grant review. The parties brief the case. There's a full argument in the case. And the Supreme Court issues, you know, an opinion explaining what its decision is and the rationale for its decision. There has always been a lot of adjudication in the Supreme Court on the shadow docket, which is issues that are presented to the Supreme Court that are just decided by summary order. 
that is without an opinion, without real briefing and argument, and without even an indication of which justices voted which way. And in the capital cases, this comes up a lot because ordinarily there are last minute requests for stays of execution that oftentimes are filed within 24 hours of the scheduled execution taking place. What's changed, John, to your question recently, and in respect to the federal death penalty, is the justices, to a striking extent, have come to decide real merits issues that are raised in capital cases, and in particularly the recent spate of federal executions in this shadow docket. And so between last July and this January, the justices on eight occasions typically with no or very little explanation, overruled lower court rulings that had put federal executions on hold on federal law grounds. This sort of muscular application of the court's so-called shadow docket in the capital realm has actually been mirrored by a sort of more general trend that the court recently has engaged in, often at the request of the previous administration, to issue injunctions that have changed the status quo without full merits consideration. So Seth, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. The court, as I hear you describing it, is actually deciding the law in this sort of shadow docket abbreviated way. Can you give us an example of a legal issue that the court decided without a lot of transparency? Well, I mean, there were substantial questions raised in the recent federal death penalty cases, both as to the propriety, given the evidence in the case, of a finding of death eligibility, and also lots of questions about the propriety, the legality and constitutionality of the means and circumstances of the executions taking place, including the eligibility of the convicted murderer for execution under federal law. Professor Steiger, I want to turn back to you on this question of the shadow docket. Do you agree that the court has been more aggressive about its use? And do you think that that suggests that the docket needs reform? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you just look by the numbers, the court is definitely using the shadow docket more in capital cases now than it has in past times. And it's problematic. It's problematic on a number of grounds of just the kinds of things that we think make for good legal decisions. So the parties are not really given an opportunity to be heard on these issues. So even if we're not going to have full briefing and argument, there could be some opportunity to flesh out the issues. And transparency. The justices are not even signing these decisions. We don't know who is voting which way. There, therefore, is no real accountability for the justices here. There's no deliberation. The justices are not even sitting in a room together. And I think one of the things that has been most troubling in this recent spate of cases is that the lower courts had imposed stays in a number of these cases on the grounds that the lower federal courts wanted to consider the issues fully. And the Supreme Court lifted those stays without giving any deference to the lower court's desire to hear the cases and give considered decision-making in these cases. So all of those things could be changed. That's kind of low-hanging fruit. Is there something Congress could do to force a different approach at the Supreme Court level? 
Sure. Congress can address all of those things. It could change the standard for deference to lower courts stays and make it more like the kind of deference that the court gives to state courts when they uphold death sentences in their own states. And they could give deference to lower courts who want to hear and give considered judgment. And they could require the court to sign its opinions or meet before deciding important issues of life or death. I think there are, look, what is now referred to as the court's shadow docket is itself not controversial. I mean, the court gets motions in thousands of cases, which are most properly decided in a summary order. The issue of what the line is of propriety for summary decision-making rather than full merits briefing and an explanation to the public of what the court's reasoning is, is a little hard to address. But one of the recent innovations in the court, largely at the behest of the Trump administration's requests, have been the issuance not just of of simple stays of an order of a lower court, but affirmative injunctions. And a good example is the recent shadow docket litigation over the state of California's rules regarding how many different COVID pods can gather in a private home. There was a challenge to the limit by groups wishing to worship together in homes. The lower federal courts, both the district court and the court of appeals, refused to enjoin the state's order after having heard argument. And the Supreme Court then just summarily enjoined the enforcement of California's law. And historically, the Supreme Court has had a standard where they have basically said, look, before we actually issue an affirmative injunction, we understand that it will be done only when the law is absolutely clear and when it is necessary to do so to serve a compelling recognized interest. And you know, at least arguably, neither of those was true in the California case. Certainly, the law was not clear. There was no decided Supreme Court opinion that compelled the conclusion that California's limitation on congregation of more than three different groups in the era of COVID was invalid. And can I just say that there may be general fixes for the troubling use of the shadow docket in cases such as the California COVID regulation cases, but the interests are at their apex when the state wants to take a life, wants to execute a prisoner. So rules for transparency and deliberation and allowing full consideration of the issues seem to be at their most salient when we're dealing with death penalty cases. So I wanted to focus for a moment on the death penalty generally, but each of you has a somewhat different stance on the morality or the appropriateness of the death penalty. Seth, you've said you're not categorically against the death penalty, that you could see its use in some instances, whereas Carol, you've indicated that you are against it in all instances. I'm wondering if each of you, starting with Seth, could lay out a little bit of what you're thinking is, as someone who has litigated extensively against the imposition of the death penalty and yet not being against the death penalty across the board. It is a curious anomaly that I've devoted 36 years to representing death row inmates, and yet I don't have a moral opposition to the application of the death penalty in an appropriate case. 
the problem with our system is that it just is not doing a good job at all in limiting application of capital punishment to the very worst of the worst. I mean, as a matter of morality, I think it is appropriate for society to decide that in a case in which, forget beyond a reasonable doubt, there is no possible doubt that a cold-blooded murder has taken place, not just a cold-blooded murder, but one that is particularly cruel and venal, that society has a legitimate moral interest in responding appropriately. That's my own personal moral view. That said, what motivated me to begin representing people on death row in 1979 was a sense that so many of the people who were getting the death sentence had not had competent counsel at trial and oftentimes had just completely incompetent counsel. And their trial was so infected with procedural errors that operated to their prejudice that it was impossible to say that their conviction and sentence of death really reflected a societal judgment that this was really someone who was the worst of the worst. And it's a very, very big problem in terms of the administration of the death penalty in our country. Professor Stoker, I know you have a strong view on this subject and well thought out basis for us. Could you give us a sense of your moral opposition as well as your legal opposition to the death penalty? I would say that my opposition is political as well as moral. I don't think it's an appropriate relationship for the state to have with its citizens to take onto itself the ability to take life. I think in certain emergency circumstances like war, the state has the power to take life, but it should be only when it's an emergency and there's no other option. And it's clear, and it couldn't be more clear today, that it's not necessary to have the death penalty. Every single one of our peer countries in the world, every single other Western developed democracy has gotten rid of the death penalty. And in fact, all of them have lower homicide rates than the United States does. So it's certainly possible to get rid of the death penalty and not need it to have a functioning society. And given that we don't need it, This is where the moral argument comes in. If it's not a necessary punishment to have, then it's really just unnecessarily cruel to take away life. And it's not only cruel to those who are executed, I think it's bad for the rest of us to engage in punishments that are unnecessarily cruel. One of the things that I have always been struck by in just my reading on the death penalty is the disproportionate impact that it has on Black Americans and other racial and ethnic minorities. One of the things I know, Professor Seger, you spent time on is just that question of racial impact and how the process has a disproportionate, disparate impact. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that's an excellent question, John. Study after study after study has shown that race plays a really substantial role in the American capital system, that discrimination against defendants charged with capital crimes who are Black or other minority races exist, and discrimination in favor of victims who are white and against victims who are non-white. And we see that all over the United States in study after study. 
why does this happen? Part of it, at least the discrimination in favor of white victims, has a lot to do with who majority race jurors feel that they can empathize with. It's maybe perhaps not even conscious, but especially in capital cases where we allow the jury to hear very emotional testimony, what's called victim impact evidence, where the loved ones of the murder victim appeal to the jury, that is going to feed into bias, whether conscious or unconscious. And then we have jury selection. So something that happens in capital cases and only capital cases is that the judge has to death qualify the jury. It's called, it's kind of a bone chilling idea, but that anyone whose views against the death penalty might interfere with their ability to impose it in a case before them is not allowed to sit. And so prosecutors can ask to excuse any juror whose views about the death penalty would make it hard for them to impose it. And because, not surprisingly, in light of American history, there's a huge race gap in terms of support for the death penalty. White people support it much more than black people. The operation of the law, even aside from discrimination, excludes many minority jurors from serving on juries. And unfortunately, we also know that this matters. There have been many studies that show that white jurors are more likely to view black defendants as being remorseless and dangerous, two of the things that are most likely to lead to the imposition of capital punishment. So for all of those reasons, race just seeps into the system at every crack and crevice and totally permeates it, yielding the not surprising results that study after study has shown us. So Seth, to come to you on this question, given that research showing a disproportionate impact on black and other minority defendants, would it be realistic to say that we don't have a system today that can impose the death penalty in a fair way, which would undercut the very idea of having it? My answer to the question is yes, with a sort of a minor qualification. I don't think that it would be impossible to essentially revamp the system to reduce the influence of bias and, frankly, caprice and mistake in choosing who the worst of the worst is. I couldn't agree more with Professor Steiker that race plays a huge and very regrettable role in determining this. I mean, like 30 years ago, I wrote an amicus brief in a Supreme Court case on behalf of the Congressional Black Caucus in which we detailed the chilling statistics of the influence race played in essentially dictating whether the jury verdict would be for death or for life. And Carol's reference to the death qualification also incredibly skews it in ways that are both racial and non-racial by disqualifying anybody who has any second thoughts about the propriety of the death penalty, even from deciding the question of guilt and innocence. So I think it would be hard, and I question whether it's societally worthwhile to try and essentially do an updated version of the Supreme Court's 1977 cases specifying guidelines for channeling the jury's discretion in order to make the system less prone to error or sufficiently devoid of error that even people who have no moral objection to the death penalty would agree that it's being administered in a reasonably fair way. 
it's going to be really, really hard. I mean, the best example I can give you is when I left my private practice to go work in the Justice Department under then new Attorney General Janet Reno, one of the first things she said to me was, look, I am opposed to the death penalty, but we have a federal death penalty, and I am determined that we are going to administer it fairly. I'm not going to tell my prosecutors they can't ask for the death penalty because I, Janet Reno, am opposed. And so I'm going to set up a committee of three people who I want to review every case in which the United States charges somebody with a death eligible offense, whether the prosecutors in the case want to seek the death penalty or not. And I want this committee to recommend to me whether we should or shouldn't seek the death penalty. And I want you to sit on this committee. And my response was, I I can't sit on this committee. I have been representing death row inmates since I started practicing law as a first year associate. And I just, I don't think I can make this decision. And, and her response was, look, I respect that if you can't do it, but all the other people in the Justice Department who might be sitting on this committee have been prosecutors, not defense lawyers. So please reconsider. And I did agree. And for a year and a half, I sat on this committee, which was, you know, I would say emotionally draining. And the recommendations that we made for seeking the death penalty, including most particularly in the case of the Oklahoma City bomber, I was comfortable that the evidence of guilt was utterly overwhelming, really not controverted at all. The circumstances of the crime were compelling, and there was no caprice involved in the recommendation that we seek the death penalty. Whether that process that Janet Reno used could be replicated on a state-by-state basis, I'm very doubtful about. Professor Stoker, you have worked in the area of capital punishment as a law professor, as a scholar, as an advocate for a very long time. In fact, you've worked with your brother, who's also a law professor at University of Texas on this subject. Could you tell us, how did you get involved in the death penalty debate and law in the first place? What was the trigger that brought you into what has turned out to be a really a lifelong commitment to addressing the really profound issues in this area of the law? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My brother and I both had the same trigger two years apart. Neither of us had really thought that much about the death penalty prior to graduating from law school. Didn't really come up that much, but each of us clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall, me in the October 1987 term and my brother in the 89 term. So two years apart, same justice. And Justice Marshall was then and remains, I think, the only justice ever to actually have litigated death penalty cases on behalf of death row inmates. And he cared a lot about these cases. And so when you serve as a clerk for Justice Marshall, you inevitably learn a lot about the death penalty. That's how I and my brother both got very interested in the topic. My brother actually lapped me, although being my younger brother, he went straight from clerking to being a law professor at the University of Texas, Texas being ground zero of the death penalty, and he started getting very involved in it there. Two years later, I joined the academy having worked as a public defender for four years, but in a jurisdiction, D.C., that didn't have the death penalty. And when I joined the academy, my dean said, you know, we need you to teach criminal law. 
and criminal procedure and an elective of your choice. And the elective of my choice, it was natural to turn to the death penalty. And so Jordan and I both teach courses on it, have litigated together, do law reform projects together. And since I'm on your podcast, I'll plug my books, have published two books on the death penalty, as you mentioned in your introduction. And Seth, how about you? What brought you into the death penalty litigation world? So when I was in law school, I took a job as a research assistant for a law professor, Charles Lund Black, who people in the law know is really a seminal figure in American law. And it happened to be the academic year in which the Supreme Court was deciding these post-Furman cases in 1976. And Professor Black, who was not principally a criminal law scholar, but was a constitutional law scholar, was just outraged at the Supreme Court's decisions. And he decided to deliver a lecture at the University of Texas Law School, which in a teeny, teeny way I helped him with. And that lecture ultimately became a book that he published in 1986 called Capital Punishment, The Inevitability of Caprice and Mistake. And Working on that project with Professor Black was a real eye-opener. When I went into private practice, you know, I was determined to devote a quarter of my time to pro bono matters, and an area of interest that I had was the representation of people on the now-growing death row, since it was two years after the Supreme Court had sort of revitalized the death penalty. And so I didn't really know how to go about doing it. But I put a telephone call into Professor Anthony Amsterdam, who actually argued and won Furman versus Georgia, and I knew was involved in these cases. And I just said, I just started practicing law a couple months ago, and I would like to be involved in death penalty litigation. I worked with Charles Black. And Professor Amsterdam, who didn't know me from Adam, said, where will you be in 10 minutes? <laughs> and I said, I'll I'll be at my desk. And sure enough, 10 minutes, I got a telephone call from Jack Boger, who's the most recent former dean of the law school at UNC, but then worked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and said, well, Professor Amsterdam just called me and said, you'd like to take some death penalty cases. How many would you like? And I started with one, convinced my law firm that I should be allowed to do this. And that was the start of it. And that case, my first case was such an appalling circumstance that it sort of propelled me to make this, you know, a a real focus of my pro bono practice. That first case with appalling circumstances seems to have had an enormous impact on your practice in this area. Could you tell us a little bit about that case and what it showed you? Sure. It involved, uh, this was the third person to be given the death penalty in Georgia after it was reinstituted in 1976. The defendant's name was Jack Carlton House. He was the father of two little girls. He had no prior criminal record. He was white. He was tried and convicted for the murder of two seven-year-old boys in an urban park in Atlanta. When I said yes and I got the case, they sent me the trial transcript to read. And I started reading the trial transcript, and I noticed two things that were just very puzzling. First was that the defendant himself was the only defense witness. The defense lawyer put the defendant on and just asked him to tell the jury 
what he was doing that day and what happened that day. And the transcript goes on for pages and pages and pages without any questions. But there was a reference in the transcript that said, whereupon Mr. Atkins, who was the defense lawyer, left the courtroom and the defendant kept testifying. Then like four or five pages later, there was a reference to Mr. Atkins coming back in the courtroom, not asking any questions. And then when the jury adjourned and came back with a verdict of guilt, I mean, no other defense witnesses presented at all. No effective cross-examination of the state's witnesses by Mr. Atkins. And the judge then said, well, we're now going to move to the penalty phase. Mr. Atkins said, I beg your pardon, Your Honor. And the court then explained that under the Supreme Court's new jurisprudence, under Georgia law, sentencing would be decided in a separate proceeding following whatever evidence the defense wanted to present. And Mr. Atkins had no defense. The only thing he said to the jury at the sentencing phase, after having provided no defense whatsoever at the guilt-innocence phase, was he said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, justice is mine, saith the Lord. And that was his full argument to the jury about why his client shouldn't be executed. That just seemed to me to be a complete absence of lawyering. And so I got in my car and I drove down to Georgia. And I started by interviewing Mr. Atkins about what was going on. And he explained to me that the reason he had left the courtroom was that he had not put his car in a parking lot and he needed to put more money in the meter while his client was testifying. And that he, in fact, did not realize that Georgia law had a separate sentencing phase at which he could offer evidence and he had not prepared any evidence or talked to the defendant about what to do. And I then started an investigation and I found among other things, two different women who were at home moms whose houses and yards bordered the little urban park where this occurred. And they knew Jack House from the neighborhood and they remembered Jack House as having been through their backyards that day at a time in which it would have been impossible for him to have committed the murders. And I sat there in their kitchens and listened to this and thought to myself, this is just appalling. And I asked them whether they knew about the trial and if this were the case, why when they heard this evidence, they didn't come forward. And they told me that they had talked to each other and decided that they had to come forward and went to see the prosecutor and explained that that couldn't be right. And the prosecutor thanked them very much and then did nothing about it. Wow. So Seth, that's a very troubling story about the absence of effective lawyering in that case. Is that still the case? Has there been no improvement in the quality of lawyers in the decades since that case took place? Yes, things have gotten better in the sense that many states and many local jurisdictions now have systems in place for appointing ordinarily two counsel to represent defendants that are charged with capital crimes. And in many instances, these are competent trial lawyers in general, but the edifice of procedural and substantive laws that bear now on the administration of the death penalty is now so complicated 
and so nuanced and convoluted that it's frankly difficult for general criminal defense lawyers to be cognizant of them and to provide what really is the kind of representation that I think everybody in society, regardless of what your feelings are about capital punishment, would agree should be accorded to people as to whom the ultimate sanction is going to be applied. Professor Steiker, can you talk a little bit about the really difficult and highly problematic issue of simply wrongful convictions? Yes, it's one of the issues that has moved the most people, people who, like Seth, are not morally opposed to the death penalty, but who worry about the way that the death penalty is imposed, the concern that the death penalty might be imposed on someone who is not actually guilty of committing the crime for which they've been charged. And there have been countless cases now in the hundreds of people who have been exonerated from death row, some of them only hours away from their scheduled executions. And this concern about wrongful conviction has played into a lot of the gubernatorial moratoria that exist to the state repeals of the death penalty that have taken place. And it has also contributed to a rather significant development with the American Law Institute. The American Law Institute is probably the premier legal think tank in the United States. It produces model laws that are often very influential. And way back in the 60s, it produced a model death penalty law that after the Supreme Court struck down all of the death penalty laws that existed in 1972, in the case that Seth referenced, Furman versus Georgia, the states who wanted to keep the death penalty, which at the time was most states, turned to this model law written by the American Law Institute. And that became and is the template for the modern death penalty, including at the federal government and at the state level. And in 2007-8, the American Law Institute hired my brother Jordan and me to write them a report about that model law. And we wrote them a report suggesting that they should withdraw their support for it because it had been unsuccessful in dealing with many of the problems that had led the court way back in the 1970s to strike down the American death penalty. And amazingly, in 2009, the American Law Institute voted to withdraw its support for its own model law on the grounds of what it called insurmountable institutional and structural obstacles to a minimally adequate system for imposing the death penalty. Or as the New York Times translated, the American death penalty system is irretrievably broken. And what was in our report and what was the basis of this rather significant development were wrongful convictions, the influence of race, and terrible lawyering. Those were, I would say, the three top reasons for the American Law Institute's decision. So we've had this group of 13 executions that took place in the last six months of the Trump administration, but now we have a Biden administration. And as Professor Steiker said at the very beginning, American public opinion has over years, and particularly right now, shifted away from the death penalty. What does reform look like is there something that the new president, President Biden, can do, something that Congress can do, something that the Department of Justice could do to address these terribly thorny issues that you're both describing? Well, certainly there are things that President Biden could do and I expect will probably do with regard to the federal death penalty because he has indicated that he opposes it. So at a minimum, he could stop seeking it. 
he could instruct his attorney general, Merrick Garland, to instruct the U.S. attorneys to stop seeking the death penalty and to no longer approve it. There are death penalties that have been imposed. So right now, Jahar Sarnayev, who was convicted of the Boston Marathon bombing, has his case, which was overturned by the First Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Supreme Court of the United States has granted review to consider whether that reversal should be overturned. Seth can talk more about this, but the uh, Solicitor General, yet to be named, could confess error in that case and let the overturning of that sentence stand. Or if a new trial is ultimately ordered, a new sentencing trial, the government could say it doesn't want the death penalty anymore. So President Biden has all of those things that I think one probably expects that he will do. He could try to do something more broad. He could try to get Congress to repeal the federal death penalty. He could try to get Congress to tie the use of federal funds in state law enforcement initiatives to the states doing something to limit or repeal the death penalty. But the 13 executions that we had at the end of the Trump administration just give an outsized and honestly false depiction of the role of the federal government in the American death penalty story. From 1976 on, we have executed more than 1,500 people, and only 16 of them have been at the behest of the federal government. So the states are really where the action is in terms of the American death penalty. And states can repeal it, as Virginia and Colorado recently have done. State Supreme Courts can declare it unconstitutional, as the Supreme Courts of the state of Washington and Connecticut have recently done. State governors can declare moratoria, as California, Pennsylvania, and Oregon's have done. So there are many things that the states can do. And honestly, the state level is even not quite the right level because the decision to seek the death penalty in individual cases lies with locally elected district attorneys. And there are many progressive prosecutors who have come into office who say they're not going to seek the death penalty. So there are many other avenues, state, federal, and local, at which the death penalty can be addressed and is being addressed. Seth, your thoughts on this? So I agree with Carol that, I mean, the president certainly has the authority is under the Constitution to instruct the attorney general to instruct federal prosecutors not to seek the federal death penalty. And it is true the federal government could exercise some influence over state prosecutions through the power of the purse by conditioning federal grants, law enforcement grants to states on meeting certain minimum procedural requisites in the administration of the death penalty. But generally speaking, Carol is absolutely right. The vast majority of death penalty proceedings in the United States occur at the state level at the behest of locally elected or locally selected independent district attorneys. And the federal government generally has very, very little sway over this. The Supreme Court's exercise of authority over this is limited to the provisions of the federal constitution. There is a way in which Congress could remove certain limitations on the scope of federal court review of state death penalty prosecutions by amending or partially repealing a law that was passed in the 1990s called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which 
put lots and lots of new procedural barriers on the ability of federal courts reviewing the constitutionality of state death penalty proceedings to provide relief. Congress could alter those restrictions in a way that would allow federal courts to have a more genuine review of the constitutionality of procedures followed in state death penalty prosecutions. Well, Seth and Professor Steiger, thank you so very much for joining us today and for giving us your insights on this very tough set of issues surrounding the death penalty. I'm sure we're going to be seeing this debate continue to intensify, and it's going to be fascinating to see how the still new Biden administration and Attorney General Garland decide to handle these issues. I can easily imagine coming back to you all for an update in a year or so, just to look back and see what has changed and what has remained the same. So thank you very much for all that you have described today and for the work that you do. Great to be with well, you, John. Yeah, thanks for having us. I also want to thank our audience, everyone who's listened in, for joining us on this episode of In the Public Interest. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to share it with a friend and subscribe, rate, or review us wherever you may get your podcasts. So we'll see you next time on In the Public Interest. Thanks much.